everyone. Welcome to episode six of the Anthrozoology podcast. And today we have a, a special guest joining us, um, Hal Herzog, and I- I'll let you introduce yourself. Hi, I'm, I'm Hal Herzog. I'm a professor emeritus at Western Carolina University. Uh, I've uh, been studying human-animal interactions for Oh, gosh, 30, 30 or 40 years, a, a, a long time. And thanks for having me on the podcast. I think it'll be really be fun talking with y'all. I'm Michelle Sidlowski. I am a PhD candidate at the University of Exeter and an instructor at Beacon College in Leesburg, Florida. Hi, my name's Sarah Heaney. Um, I'm a PhD student at Exeter um, University in Anthropology. And um, over to you, Chris. Yeah, and I'm Chris. I'm also a PhD student at Exeter University, um, and my research focuses on cat-human relationships in urban environments and social discourses surrounding breeding uh, cats. Well, I suppose uh, I, I'll, I'll throw in with an initial question. Uh, do you consider yourself an anthrozoologist? Yeah, I do. Uh, I, my background is in, my PhD is in animal behavior, but it's in the psych, a psychology department. So uh, my, my field and my teaching and uh, uh, you know, a lot of my research has, has really been in, in psychology, starting with animal behavior, but I, I switched over to human-animal interactions uh, really in the 1980s, which is right about the time uh, anthrozoology as a field was, was getting started. And I was fortunate enough to hook up with the uh, International Society for Anthrozoology uh, pretty early on. I was not one of the founders of the field, but I was, I was in from pretty close to the beginning. And for me, it's just been a great intellectual home. Uh, it's, it's, uh, one of the things I love about it is the enthusiasm that everybody has, but also the interdisciplinary nature of the fact that there's people from you know, nursing, social work, history, uh, epidemiology, uh, psychology, and I just, you know, I've always liked the margins of fields, you know, sort of the things that are on the edges. I think that's where the real excitement is. And I think that's really true of anthrozoology. I think that's very true. I think the interdisciplinary nature of the field is what drew most of us mm-hmm. into it. We were discussing before um, you came on um, about the differences between such um, names as anthrozoology, human animal critical studies, Etc. So maybe you can explain a bit more to us about the differences that you see in those areas. Yeah, that's something I haven't get given a huge amount of thought about. But so what else say uh, could be completely wrong. Uh, my general sense is that the founders of the field of zoology and most of the participants came from a background of sort of empirical research. That is to say, they came from, uh, like myself, animal behavior, you know, where we counted things. Uh, you know, increasingly, it's involved clinical psychology and things like that, but it's sort of, sort of evidence-based. And if you look at the papers that are published in the society's journals, they tend to be evidence-based. They tend to have numbers or else being some analysis of qualitative research. Also, in, in recent years, and this is sort of true, anthrozoology has become uh, focus very much on human pet relationships, uh, companion animal relationships, especially human dog relationships. By the way, I don't think this is a good thing, which maybe we can talk about later. Um, 
I think critical studies uh, are, are and grab big of human of uh, human animal studies comes from a different place sort of in the academia. People are more likely to come from a background in uh, in the humanities, but more importantly, they're more likely to come from a have a, a, a different political perspective. And I think a lot. Of, I think people. Uh, that take the critical studies point of view tend to have more of a political agenda than people uh, that are in anthozoology. In fact, and this is a, a this is a, a true fact <laughs> for the International Society for Anthozoology. I think this is still true. You have to be recommended, attested to, by a present member, and there's a reason for that. And it was basically to keep animal rights group from taking over the organization. And uh, when, when the International Society for Anthropology got started, uh, PETA had just taken over the uh, New England Anti-Vivisectionist Society. They had, uh, put, they had had their uh, bunch of PETA members registered. They elected a board that was PETA sympathetic and PETA took over the New England Anti-Vivisectionist Society. Uh, presumably in part it was claimed, I'm not sure if this is true because they had, they had a pot of money. Um, the founders of anthozoology were worried about, uh, they, they wanted the organization to be scholarly. That was the whole thing, it's a, an organization of scholars without a political agenda. And so I, I think that's really a difference between when people say they're interested in some critical studies. And you can also tell by the way, read the journals and you can see the difference in the people in critical studies use bigger words. They, they, use, long, they use longer words and they, and they cite Foucault and French, you know, you know, European intellectuals whose names I can't pronounce very well, and I don't understand much of what they write. It's it's beyond me. So so I so I think so I think I think there there, there is a difference, but uh, <laughs> that's sort of one person's perspective on it. Well, I think it's interesting that you brought up the dog-human relationships uh, because that is has been one of the the struggles that a lot of us have faced with. Uh, the society and um, publications is that those of us that work in wildlife, I I'm very focused on uh, human captive elephant relationships and also on uh, how conservation is affected by these um, relationships, travel groups, ecotourism. I have a big focus on um, Southeast Asia. And uh, it is it is difficult to find representation in a lot of uh, anthropological labeled groups just because there is this focus on, on human pet relationships and not so much a focus on wildlife. So do you see a, a sort of a natural change occurring? Do you see this um, pendulum swinging maybe more to be more inclusive toward conservation and wildlife? Or do you think that anthropology will in general stay focused on that human pet relationship? Yeah, I think this is a serious problem. And I, uh, I'm, I'm interested in uh, human-animal interactions in the, in the broadest sense. And one of the things that attracted me to this, to the study of human-animal interaction is that uh, animals are involved in almost every aspect of human life, whether we're talking about religion, where we're talking about you know, pets, when we talk about what we eat, when we talk about psychopathology, all these things, I, I can't think of a single area of human life that there's not an animal component. And so, so I think we need that broad perspective. To me, that's what makes the field exciting. You know, we need to be studying hunters. You know, we need to be studying uh, mahouts, you know, 
that, that do with elephants. We need to be studying animal researchers, you know, because uh, of their relationship with animals. But what's happened is, is that this increasing focus on, on pets, I think is getting more pronounced. I, I don't have data on it. And I think the reason, I think one reason is, is money. And uh, researchers tend to go where the money is. And um, for years, I ditched about the pet products company, pet products companies not putting money into, into research in our area. Well, now they are starting to put money into it. But the problem is, is that what they want, they want, to, they want to focus on one type of research, and that is research which shows, and they make no bones about this, pets are good for people. And so, and so reachers, you know, to do your research, you need to get money and that's a, that's a pile of money. And um, the other thing is that anthozoology is, uh, tends to draw people that are uh, pet lovers, of course, and I'm a pet lover, but they tend to be uh, pet focused enough that they come in there convinced of the positive impacts of pets on people. And you know, pets are miracle workers. And if only everybody would get a dog, the world would be a better place. And to me, that's not good from a scientific point of view. When you come into something with, with these a priori beliefs um, and people want, to study, people want to study what they love, which is dogs and cats and pets. So I worry about the future of the field. Uh, quite honestly, I worry that that it's getting too focused, getting too narrow. And uh, so, for example, the editor of the journal, journal Anthony Podrasek, the editor of Anthozoa, he really tries to encourage uh, people with the broader perspective, uh, people publishing in wildlife and things like that. And that's also true of the organizers of the conferences. And every year, it all, this comes up. It's like, man, we got too many papers on pets. Let's expand it. Well, you can't expand it unless you get the submissions. And so I think that's one of the problems. Part of the problem is that uh, people are not sending their, their papers to the, to the journals, you know, if they're studying relationships between, you know, farmers and elephants in, in India, you know. I think a lot of it too, people are put off because that, that the, the idea is um, perpetuated that these journals, they, they don't take in other types of research or they're very right. quantitative focused. So you, so you don't even, try to submit to these journals because you think oh, yes I, 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 I think that's I think that's a big problem and you know I'm a, I'm an associate editor of the journal and we're, we're constantly trying to encourage people to submit uh, su submit their papers on non-pet related areas we really want more and more papers papers on it the, the papers need to focus on the human aspect of human animal relationships but sometimes we get submissions that you know, are completely like an animal, animal behavior stuff, you know, like a dog behavior paper or something like that. And that's, that's not what we publish. We publish things from the human side of the human animal relationship, but that covers enormous territory. Do you publish um, viewpoints articles or does it have to be something that is actually um, had, a, had some actual research behind it? <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting question. Uh, most, nearly all the papers have research behind them. So if, if the viewpoint would be, you know, for example, um, why we should get people to uh, not go to zoos, that would, I don't think that would, that would be relevant if it's a political advocacy piece. If it was based on attitudes for people towards zoos and what uh, we might could do to change those attitudes, that might fall into the, into the 
into the frame, into the realm of the journal. But one thing people can do is they can write the editor and say, look, I'm thinking about doing this. Uh, what do you yeah. think? Is it, is it worth me writing it up and submitting it to your journal? Or would you recommend I send it someplace else? Yeah, because there's a lot of research that the more you think about amphrozoology, the more there is that needs research, but there's, um, yeah, so, so like even identifying areas of um, potential study or things that we think, or yeah, that could be examined further. Um, and that's one of the things I love about amphrozoology is there's so much unexplored territory and you just start thinking about one thing and you realize that there's this whole open field that nobody has um, actually looked at. No, I completely agree with that. And, and there's some areas that are sort of overstudied, you know, I, I think uh, in, in some ways, you know, do we need yet another paper on uh, where they give the UCLA loneliness scale to people to see if pet owners are lonelier. Um, we have tons of, tons of studies on that. We don't have that many studies on uh, the relationship between you know, Indian farmers and uh, farmers in India and, and the elephants that are raiding their crops. You know? So no, I think you're absolutely right. I think, I, think, I, I think the great thing about the field is just how much stuff there is out there. So many areas that are unexplored yeah. and I'd like to see more and more, more and more of that. And, and people and and you know uh, you know we it's funny we don't there's there's areas that are important that we know almost nothing about and so for example one of the things that I've, that I've been interested in, in is uh, people that don't like their pets people living with pets that they don't like or they're afraid of and I remember talking to a very senior a very senior you know, there's tons of papers on people that love their pets that we don't know very little about people that that wind up living with the animals that they don't like you know that, you know mm -hmm. And you know, it's like you know, living with a spouse, you don't living with an abusive, you know, abusive spouse is an important area. I remember talking to a very senior anthropologist one time. I said, I won't say the name, I said, like, you know, I really want to do some studies. We actually tried, you know, and about, about people that live with animals that they don't like or they're afraid of. And they said, Well, why would anybody be interested in that? And I thought, man, that most people are not extreme pet lovers, you know? That'd Most people great. are not like the people that are studying anthozoology. Well, and, and my husband is not, well, my husband tells people that we got married because we both love animals. He just likes his grilled. And so <laughs> he, um, he is not um, a lover of my dogs and I do have dogs. And so, yes, that would be quite interesting to see, especially those spouse relationships that one loves animals, one doesn't. But what I used to ask my students, I would say, all right, how many of you know someone, you know, a class, I'd say, how many of you know someone that's either afraid of or doesn't like the family pet? And almost always, at least a third of the students in the class would raise their, would raise their hand. And so that, you know, that's an area that does deal with the, you know, pets, you know, but, you know, the, the pet products company's not going to be too right. But wouldn't that be more interesting? Because then that would be, um, you know, it would align with kinship studies that, that you don't always like your family members, but you don't get rid of them. So that's, that, that's exactly right. That's exactly that'd be fascinating. Right. Well, I did want to go back to what you said about something you said about the journal in that um, I noticed that the journal specifically avoids welfare issues, animal welfare, you know, uh, they ask not for submissions that, that they won't deal with animal welfare. Do you, do you have any, um, I'm just curious if you know 
why anthrozoologists who, who label themselves as kind of old school anthrozoologists don't want to deal with um, animal welfare? Is it because there, there needs to be the focus on the human side of things or, or what's your take on that? Uh, I haven't really, I don't really have much of a take. I've never really talked to it. I've never really talked about it uh, in the editorial board meetings. Um, my sense is that there are animal welfare journals. And if, if you know, again, it's the, the, the focus of the journal is on human-animal relationships. And there, there are papers, I'm sure, that relate to animal, animal welfare, but not directly. So if the paper is about improving the lot of, okay, let's take a couple, let's just say a couple of examples. Um, um, let's say we had a paper on, gosh, I'll have to think now. Uh, improving, let's say, improving the uh, welfare of uh, dogs in animal shelters by looking at, let's say, their cage sizes, or reducing the noise level and the you know, bar barking dog noise level, so, you know, something like that. I don't think that would fall into the, to the, you know, to me, there's not a human-animal interaction, even though it deals with dogs. You know, if you were to say, you know, if you were to say, I've got, you know, I've been doing this really great paper and we're looking at, you know, the impact of, uh, of cage sizes in animal shelters on, on dogs, should I send it to anthozoos? I'd say no. There's other journals to get, there's other journals for that. That makes sense. So, you know, with human-animal relationships. What if it was um, something about the animal, um, animal welfare in the sense of abandoned animals, for example, why humans, um, abandoned animals or the perspective. Oh, okay. Now that's a, that's an interesting that's an interesting question. Uh, there's a literature on that. Uh, it has not been it's it's pretty old now. It's, most of the studies were done in the 90s. You know, why people abandon why people abandon their animals. Um, that would be that would that would be an interesting I, I think I think that might fall into the into that. Oh let's take let's take another example that I think would fall into it. Right now there's a big controversy on spay and neuter. And uh, you know, do we really need to be cutting the balls off every dog? You know, and and uh, and and uh, and I think I think uh, a study on that would be an. In fact, I'm I'm working with a, with a colleague on developing an, an animal a pet ethics scale, and we have we have item we have items on that. You know, you know, how do you feel about you know spay and neuter? Is it ethical? Is it unethical? Um, you know, and that, that's one of the main things. But I think that would fall within 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 the, the frame of the journal because it deals with human attitudes towards towards animals. We're not making a political statement about spay and neuter. I can go. So um, I was uh, reading a paper that you co-authored recently with uh, Carrie Rodriguez and, and Nancy Gee, um, published in uh, Frontiers. Um, and I want to say thank you, but I wish you'd written that four years ago. <laughs> so naively, um, during my master's, I, I decided I was going to write a, an essay on um, human-pet interactions in relation to, to mental health. Um, very naive, went in there and looking for papers to support my arguments. Pretty soon in, I realized the literature is a big mess and you can pick and... and, 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 and yeah. exactly right. Oh, oh, by the way, by the way, that's what I realized too. I never wanted, I never wanted to, to do anything with pets. And then when I wrote the book, I had to write a chapter on pets. And I started looking at the literature, and the literature was not at all what I thought. You know, I started, my experience was exactly like yours. 
so yeah I, I, I sort of yeah so it wasn't my best piece because yeah the, the literature I mean as you know it's just all over the place um yes yeah. yeah, so I, I really enjoyed um reading that article um and sort of yeah some of the suggestions to to to, to bring to, to sort of control for variables etc um, but one thing that's really struck me with this this idea that pets are good are good for you even if you narrow it down to saying having a dog is good for you it it just seems so broad and it's like saying yeah a marriage is good for your health or having a human human <laughs> is good for your health because it's, everybody's an individual and it seems like some something that really could be addressed from the qualitative or isn't addressed enough from the qualitative perspective. So taking a good relationship between a human and a dog or a not so good relationship and really drilling down and asking, well, why is this relationship good? Why is this relationship not working? And, and coming up with um, sort of commonalities and doing like a bottom, bottom up approach. And I wondered what your thoughts are. Because a lot of it seems to with the, the human animal interactions and health, it comes from the big, massive, the, the big quantitative studies and and then they're all over the place. And they are. Um, so yeah, I wonder what your thoughts were on the, the more qualitative approach or if there's need for more qualitative study or if there's even any more any need for <laughs> for this um well I'm I've long question. been a fan. I've long been a fan of qualitative research and my first paper, in fact, the papers that I've written, I think were really some of the most important papers were qualitative papers. Um, the study that I did early on the animal rights activists, um, you know, where I went and did interviews with them, that, you know, studies that ethical, did a study of ethical conflicts and veterinary students and things like that. We could only do that through qualitative research. The thing that interests me now is it touches on what you're dealing with is the mismatch between what the quantitative research says about, let's say, the impact of pets on health and the qualitative. And, I'm, and I can't wrap my head around it. So for example, let's take, um, let's take the question, a simple question, are pet, are, are pet, does getting a pet make people happier uh, or less lonely? And I've done a deep dive into both of these areas. I've looked at the research on uh, studies of pets and depression. And I've looked at the study of the impact of pets on, uh, on loneliness. And in both cases, I found, I've written some blog stuff on this. I have some stuff in my new book about it, the new version of my book about it. In both cases, most of the studies have found out that pet owners are not less depressed. Uh, are not, excuse me, yeah, that they're not less depressed. Uh, and that they're that they're not less that they're not less lonely. So and the day I mean we're talking big numbers here. We're talking maybe in each case 30, 30 studies of which maybe five found that pet owners were less depressed and five out of thirty found that they were less lonely. Most studies found no effect, despite what the pet the pet products companies tell you. They pick and choose the studies. Most studies find no impact of pets. However, we all know in our hearts that. That, that that's not true. We all know deep in our hearts that our pets do make us feel better, that they do make us le feel less lonely. So, so to me, there is this mismatch between what the objective data says and what people actually tell you and what their own experience is. And I think you can only get to their own experience by asking them through qualitative work. But I don't know which ones to believe. 
you know, because 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 so, a lot of these studies, like take for example, all right, take for example a study that was done on uh, uh, therapy dogs with kids with cancer, kids undergoing cancer. It was a big study, it cost a million dollars, funded by Zoetis Corporation, uh, world's largest pet pharmaceutical company. They looked at uh, it was done at five multi-site studies. There was a it was a clinical clinical trial, randomized clinical trial. Guess what they found? They found that six weeks of interacting with therapy dogs on a regular basis had no impact at all on the well-being or stress levels of these kids. Zero. However, did the kids did the kids feel that what did the kids, what was their experience with it? The kids loved playing with the dogs. And they said it made them feel better. But this and their parents said the kids love going, you know, love and have the dog do treatments, all that stuff. So there was a mismatch between what the objective stuff said and what everybody felt. Now, so so how did the how did the researchers handle this? Well, they had they had a million bucks in money from the pet products company, so they had to put a positive spin on it. So what they did was they emphasized they de they de-emphasized the the quantitative measures, which in which in that case their hypotheses were not were not supported, and they emphasized the qualitative stuff. So here, there's a problem with qualitative stuff. On the one hand, it tells us a a, a, some truths that we don't normally get from given the UCLA loneliness scale. On the other hand, people, you can, that can get spun too. You know what I mean? It's, uh, there's, there's a classic study that Debbie Wells did at, uh, Deborah Wells did at, 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 uh, at, Queen, at Queens University. And she uh, looked at the differences. She looked at uh, pet owners and uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. And she had like, I've forgotten the number, like 100 people with chronic fatigue, there, there, you know, 100 that had pets, 100 didn't have pets. Every one of the ones that had pets said it made them feel better, that their pets improved their life and all this stuff. Well, when she looked at the objective measures of symptoms and stress and things like that, there was no difference at all between the people with pets and the people without pets. So sometimes our objective, our subjective reality doesn't miss the objective stuff. And I can't, I can't wrap my head around that. I mean, I go to the, I go to the beach and look out the ocean, the world looks flat, you know, and I know it's not flat, but it looks flat. So but I, isn't, I that, isn't that what keeps the fun? in our studies is the whole fact that the psychology, what we feel doesn't really ever match up with yeah. the facts. Yes, yeah, so I don't know what, the, I don't know what the true facts are a lot of times, you know, I really, I really don't. To me, that's why, you know, and one reason why my, my, my book is so squishy in terms of people wanting me to tell them what the truth is. And most of the time we don't really, really know what the truth is. And I think maybe that's why my students or, or students in general connect with the book is that they go into this class, especially an introductory class, thinking we are going to tell them how they should be thinking about animals. And when instead we throw at them, hey, all these inconsistencies, you guys need to start thinking about these inconsistencies, and then they really get excited about it. And I think that's part of the draw. Good. I find myself, when I started my research, I was very much on that because I come from a biology background. I was very much on the present the facts. Here's how it is. Put the research study out there. And um, 
now I'm, I think I'm more of the got to get the research out there and make a change, make a difference um, side of things. So I think I, I've swung a little bit toward the activism side. I, I think well, I'm, I'm, on, I'm, on the, I'm on the fun side. So, <laughs> so but I think there's a real value to recognize in your inherent bias. So I, I find self-reflection is a, a really helpful exercise because I come from a, a science background too. So I, I tend to think that everything needs to be objective and um, uh, yeah, it needs to be objective and what have you. But actually, I mean, I have inherent biases and and I think embracing we all do we, we, we all have we all have we all have inherent biases right we were just wondering because uh it, it does seem like there's a vast majority of women uh in the anthrozoology programs um the undergraduate ones seem to be much more balanced but in the upper levels the masters and the, the PhD programs as far as anthrozoology labeled programs it does seem to have a vast majority of women and uh, we were sort of wondering how that's viewed from the outside. Is anthrozoology suffering because there's this viewpoint that it's only middle-aged women who are in the field? I mean, there, that accusation was made at, at one point on Facebook, it's only middle-aged women in the field. Um, what's your take on that? Well, th that's not true. Uh, there's also young women in the field, but the idea that the field is dominated by women is, is true. And um, I actually put a section in my book, a book on that, because um, what I do is I went and I look, I, I, I found out, uh, uh, for example, the, uh, I think close to 90% of membership in the society, the International Society for Anthrozoology is women. Um, I looked at the number of papers uh, published in one, one year uh, by women authors on papers published in anthrozoos, and it was 80 or 90%. Uh, of the members of the uh, board now, I think all the members of the board except two are women. The president, the past president, um, and the president-elect are also women in the field. So this absolute, the field is absolutely dominated by women. Um, but you know that's it's also true of other fields. So for example, veterinary medicine totally changed, at least in the United States over about a 50 year period for when it, when it was virtually all men to right now, there's 80% 80 of, of uh, students in vet schools in the United States are women. So as things have, uh, you know, as sort of barriers to women have uh, in, in the world of, of animal care, have, as barriers have opened up, more and more women are drawn to that. And, you know, so the question is why, you know, is that a question of nature or nurture? Um, it's probably some mix of the two, and uh, what what I argue in my when my what I argue in my book is uh, is sort of a bell curve theory, in which you think that that most there's very little differences between men and women in, for example, pet ownership, dog ownership, cat ownership, roughly equal numbers. Uh, if you ask people about attitudes towards animal research and things like that, um, they're pretty, women are somewhat more uh, inclined to uh, favor animal welfare than men are, but the difference isn't that big. It's, 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 there's a lot of overlap. But when you get to the extremes of the distribution, people that really, really, really care about women, women and really, really, then what you see is that, that there's more and more women at the extremes. And the same is true of 
of people that uh, kill and abuse animals. Uh, you find that as you get toward the extremes, 90%, 95%, 98%, depending on your measure, of animal abusers are, are, are men. So um, I think that part of this is the fact that women are, are, are naturally more, you know, more, more nurturing uh, as a group, maybe on average a little bit more, more nurturing than men. Uh, men more aggressive a little bit, but then when you get to the extremes, you get these bigger differences. That's also true of the animal rights movement. The animal rights movement has been, uh, since the beginning of the animal rights movement in the 19th century, has been very dominated by women. Isn't so it interesting, though, that most of the authors in the animal rights movement have been men? You know, yes. the, the bigger books? Yes. Yes. In fact, when it, when it, I wrote a paper on this, and unfortunately, it disappeared. It was in, it, I, I looked at the animal's agenda and I looked at who were, this was a, an animal rights magazine that's no longer published. Men wrote most of the articles, but women, women were well represented in the magazine, but this, this sounds so sexist, but it was just true. Primarily because they were writing recipes for, vegan, for vegetarian vegan foods. You know, men were like, most of the philosophers, most of the philosophers in the animal rights movement have been men, although, to me, one of the greatest of the philosophers was like Mary Midgley, who was a woman. I think you know, you know tr tremendously important. And then people like you know Carol Adams and a bunch of right. you know, women are represented. But you know that a lot of the heavy hitters are in the philosophers are, have tended to be men, like you know, Tom Reagan, Peter Singer, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but in terms of anthrozoology, if you look at who's really making the contributions in the field right now, you know. It's mostly women, and I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, really good, you know, you know, most of the really good researchers I know now in the field are, are women. You know, there's no, there's no question about that. And I do think that anthrozoology is evolving. I really feel like now that we're, we have these master's programs, these PhD programs, I really think that we're sort of redefining things, and we're, um, yeah, just, just re, kind of almost remaking the field. Um, how do you feel about that? Is that a, is that a comfortable feeling, or um, do you think well, that? Well, yeah, I well well it is well again I I my feeling I'm worried about the field being too taken over by the by the pet products industry and becoming too focused yeah. on on cats and dogs and and uh, the impact of pets on health and the way that the I think the industry overhypes the results and is a misleading interpretation of, of, of a lot of the fundamental results. What I'm really excited about, though, is people coming in from different disciplines into the field. And the field sort of going more mainstream. And I, you know, my field is psychology, so I see this a lot. I see a lot of social psychologists, personality psychologists, uh, people interested in the psychology of eating and drinking, stuff like that. They're now getting interested in human-animal relationships. Oh, and one of the things, one of the things that I think is really great about new people coming into the field is they have better research skills. And some of the some of the research that's coming out now is by you know young new researchers is just incredibly sophisticated. And it's all the way from things like looking at uh, you know dog genomes and dog brains and how we have shaped we have shaped that and actually using you know these incredible genetic te techniques to uh, look at the evolution of human-dog relationships, um, to people using uh, just uh, really sophisticated statistical techniques to uh, tease out factors about, let's say, why people 
liquidity need. And so I just think, I think, there, I think, um, and we're seeing more and more, we're seeing more and more uh, good studies, good controlled studies on the impact of, for example, animal assisted therapy um, with you know, good control groups and stuff like that. So I think people coming into the field now are, and they're, you know, they're, they're bringing in some uh, skill sets that, that are really, they're really needed. I think that's where the biggest changes are, is just improving, you know, you know, sort of improving, improving, uh, improving the research. But on the other hand, I'm concerned about the narrowing of the field to the study of pets. I am as well. Well, especially because my, you know, obviously I research conservation and wildlife, so I get very upset when it's just focused on pets. But I do tell my students regularly that they, you know, they are redefining the field and really they can sort of make it. No, I, I think that's true. Yeah, which is exciting, which is what keeps it fresh. Yeah, and there's also these new research centers popping up, you know, and uh, um, you know, in, internationally. So I, I, yeah, I think things are things are doing well. No, none of us that were involved in this in this area, you know, back when it was first getting started, ever envisioned it would have taken off the way it has. Another edition? Yeah, there's a there's a second there's a second edition coming out. Uh, probably it will come out in December. Um, the uh, basically the book needed updating. I mean, there's a lot of facts that were at, that are out of date. You know, like you know the amount of money people, you know, some you know simple facts, the amount of meat we eat, you know, national trends in meat eating. You know, uh, you, you know researchers that I quote uh, that are now dead. You know, they're now the late professor this and that. But I also added I added some new stuff. I kept I kept the stories. I added some new stuff. So for example, one of the things that's interesting right now is uh, is uh, animal research in the era of COVID. And does this change the moral equation? So I, you know, I've contacted, you know, I've got some statements from Peter Singer and some philosophers and stuff like that about, you know, should we really be using mice or monkeys and stuff like that for COVID research? So, so, it, so it's basically, uh, it's, it's, it's basically an update with, with some new material. I talk about uh, new research on the pet effect, uh, the impact of the pet, pet products industry on, uh, Anthrozoology and anthrozoological research, you know, some some issues like that. New research on uh, new research on uh, how people how people think about uses of different species. So 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 it's, so it's basically enough. That there's there's no major changes in terms of the basic ideas. I haven't really changed my mind about that stuff. And I've tried to keep the same you know conversational style and make it based on stories about people. Um, I wondered if you would change. I wondered if you would change chapter one, where it is refers to anthrozoology as a new field. Uh, did I do that? Uh, my wife keeps bugging me about that. And she says, how long are you going to keep saying that? The full field, it's still sort of a new field when you compare it. I can't remember if I changed that or not. I think I did. Um, you know, we're talking about a field that's basically 30 or 40 years old. So I'd still, I'd still say that's a new field. Just, I think that this is the thing. The thing about that I realized is that it's a good thing I wrote the original book when I did because I couldn't write it now because there's so much new stuff coming out. Like this is stuff on dog cognition and human dog relationships. There are hundreds of papers coming out every year. Uh, same thing with stuff on vegetarianism. There's hundreds of stuff, hundreds of papers coming out every year. And so uh, fortunately I wrote it when, the, when you could sort of get a handle on all these different areas and now it's just impossible to keep up with the literature.
question. Uh, Chris is actually chairing uh, in Anthrozoology as International Practice Conference at Exeter, which we're all uh, involved in in some capacity nice. or another. Um, and, and Anthony, the editor of Anthrozoos, is, is coming to speak at that conference. Um, and we've invited people from all over the world, undergraduates, master's degree students, PhD students, to come together and kind of discuss you know, what they're searching for, what they're researching, what their goals are, you know, uh, the implications of, of all of that. And so I'm just wondering if you were talking to this next generation of anthrozoologists that's that's up and coming and, and actually maybe has an undergraduate degree in, in anthrozoology and is now looking for the bigger picture, um, you know, what, what advice would you give them if, if we're, because we're having a career conference, uh, career uh, sort of guidance at this this conference. I'm wondering what would you, what would you have us tell them? Um, I, I think I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure. People people go into the people are drawn to uh, graduate and undergraduate programs in this area because they um, you know really they really love animals and they want to spend their life working with with them or working working in research and. Uh, I don't know what advice I have for students. I have some people, I have some advice for people running the programs. And I, and my sense is that um, in today's climate, in the United States, it's incredibly expensive to go to graduate school. And um, you need to have, if, if, unless you're wealthy, and don't need to make a living. And there are some people, like I know, like I did some, I did some, uh, you know, I've been a visiting scholar with the Kinesius program. And they had some folks in that program that were getting their master's degrees. And, you know, they were, you know, they were, you know, middle, middle-aged people who wanted, you know, who wanted to learn some new stuff. You know, they didn't need to get a job. But if you're in a situation where you need to get a job to pay back your student loans and stuff like that, you, you at some point need to come up with a, uh, a career plan. And uh, for most people, it's not gonna become a college professor in anthrozoology. And so I think these programs need to, need to have some applied components and need to have some real serious, uh, do some real serious thinking about right, where are my students, you know, once we, once we you know, have, have them here and we, we teach them what, we teach them research skills, we, we teach them um, you know, stuff about animals, teach, you know, what, what, what are their job prospects gonna be when they graduate from the program? So I think faculty have an obligation to develop programs that uh, help students have a career. And that's what I sort of worry about, about some of the programs, you know. Um, you know, what are the job opportunities post post graduation? That's actually a really good point because when I joined the faculty at Beacon, I actually wondered because they had such a big focus on the hands-on, the behavior, the training, the 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 working um, in zoos or rescues or shelters. I actually wondered because my my background was very much theoretical based, um, but then I realized that exactly what you said is is the case we're preparing um these students in anthrozoology for careers that actually make money we're we're preparing them in a very um hands-on way and and it is it is what's necessary and that is what we're doing at, at beacon right and, and the other thing i guess i would advise for people that do want to be want to wind up getting phds and becoming college professors um 
don't major in anthozoology in the sense that in the sense that um, there aren't many I, there aren't many university jobs at this point in anthozoology, but there are in sociology, anthropology, psychology, areas like that. So I would say get your degree in something like that, but you can wind up doing your dissertation research. You can wind up hooking up with a faculty member uh, at a university that, that, that's, that's doing stuff on hum various aspects of human-animal interaction. So you can still work in anthozoology. You can still be an anthozoologist. Does that make sense? I mean, I, I you know, my job and, and I you know you know my job is I, I my main day job was teaching psychology you know my my I didn't teach I never taught a course in human animal interaction um I I taught psych I taught psychology courses which I really liked you know but and did this stuff on the side so I would I would say you know I would say uh uh you know you you, you, you want to be mainstream enough that you can teach uh for university jobs you know, they need some people that can teach research methods, some people that can, uh, and I would say, similarly, I would say that and increasing what we're seeing is people publishing papers in mainstream journals. Mainstream journals are now starting to take, in psychology at least, are starting to take human-animal interaction seriously. And I would say, you know, don't just publish things in niche journals like anthozoology, you know, you know anthozoos or society and animals. Um, you know, try and pump, look for some mainstream journals to, you know, to make your vita look like that. Yeah, you're not just an anthropologist. You're also a psychologist. You're also an anthropologist. You're also a biologist. So those were sort of the advice I would have. Okay, great. So if you had unlimited amounts of money and unlimited amounts of access to whomever and whatever animals, whichever animals you would like, um, apart from um, researching maybe the unfun project uh, subject of why people don't like their pets, what would you choose? To, what would you be your, this is the thing I really, really want to get to the nitty gritty of and have fun with it? Well, it, I've, all, I've, thought, I've thought about that. And I, I really, I feel like my biggest failed project was uh, my circus animal trainer project. And I think it might be too late for that because I think you're such a dying breed. But I thought that you know, I, that to do that study right, I would actually have to join the circus and travel with the circus for a year. And you know, I could never be an animal trainer. I don't have the I don't have it to do that. But what I could do is like you know, clean up elephant poop and help feed the tigers and stuff like that. But just see what their world was like because their world was so different than mine. Um, it was. Uh, uh, Hunter Thompson, the, the journalist, um, uh, one of his first book, the Gonzo Journalist, one of his first books was on uh, uh, outlaw motorcycle gangs. And um, he talks about what it was like for being a journalist, sort of infiltrating this world of outlaw motorcycle gangs. And I felt that way about circus animal trainers. It was like their world was so different than mine, but yet, and it was so intensely tied up with these animals. And it was so, uh, you know, just morally and psychologically com complicated. And I, these people were so different. It's like, um, I remember one woman telling me that like that her daughter wanted to like uh, go to college. And she was mystified by why her daughter would want to go to college. You know, it's like, why would she want to go to college when she could do, when she could do this, you know, be in the circus. And like, and like to me, it's like, 
Well, what's the most fundamental thing a parent wants their kid to do? Graduate from high school and go to college. And you know, it's like, not for, not, not for these guys. It's a whole different world. So that's what I would do. I'd join the circus, I, you know? So that could be your next book, Hal Joins the Circus. Join us soon for the Anthrozoology podcast with Hal Herzog, part two.